welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church Lagos. We hope this sermon answers the doubts or questions that you have about the Gospel, its relevance to your life, and the ever-evolving culture around us. Our vision is to see the City of Lagos and beyond renewed by the Gospel, and to make that happen, we need your support. You can do this by rating this podcast, following us, and giving through the Give tab on our website, citychurchlagos.com. Thank you for your generosity. We pray this sermon impacts you positively with the gospel. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading is taken from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 34. At the end of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord. Kindly respond by saying, thanks be to God. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, He cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are looking looking outside for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. That's Vipo. (laughs) If you didn't understand it, please listen to last week's message. But if you know that We serve a God that can do all things. Can we just put our hands together for him? He has never lost a battle. And he never will. And he's not going to start in your time. Let's go to God together in prayer. Lord, we know that you can do all things. We know that you can do all things but fail. And so we ask, Lord, that your word will speed forth and go ahead and accomplish the word, the purpose for which you're sending it. You whose almighty word, chaos and darkness head and took their flights, we ask, O oh God, that everywhere that the gospel does not share this way, that there will be light. Let there be light in our hearts. Let there be light in our souls. Let there be light in our spirits. Thank you, Lord, for answered prayers. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so good morning, everybody. One minute, please. So if today is your first time, we are continuing our series on... on the book of Mark. It's titled, Introducing the Son of God. And today we are going to be looking at Mark chapter 3 from verse 20 to 35. So a few months ago, I got back into Fit Farm. 
All that means is that <laughs> I stay exercising again. And it was going great until I developed serious pain in my elbow. And so I did the normal things. You rest it for a bit, you would massage it, but the pain still persisted. So eventually I decided to do what we all know we should not do, but we still do. I consulted Dr. Google. I really wasn't that bad. Google didn't tell me I had only six months left to live. But, well, here's what I found out. And don't worry, I actually confirmed this from a real physiotherapist. What's going on with my elbow is what is called lateral epicondylitis, also known as tennis elbow. No, tennis elbow is easier. Well, here's the interesting thing about tennis elbow. Even though you feel a lot of pain at your elbow, what causes tennis elbow often has nothing to do with your elbow itself. The cause of tennis elbow, most of the time, is actually your wrist. And so what happens is that you overload your wrist for some reasons, and so your wrist extensors become strained, and you begin to see the effect as pain in your elbow. And so to fix my elbow, I've had to fix my wrist. I've had to rehab my wrist, and the more the rehab has gone on, the more the pain in my elbow has subsided. And many times we experience something similar in our walk with God. A lot of times we are trying to deal with the pain points. Oh, I need to fix my attitudes. Oh, I need to fix my behaviors. But here's the problem. Just like my elbow, unless we deal with the root, should I say the wrist, of the matter, we'll continue to experience dysfunction and pain and our situation will continue to degenerate. And that's what the series is attempting to do. The series is proposing that at the root of our issues is that we have not come to terms with who Jesus is. At the root of our struggle to obey God, our lack of joy in Christ, our love for the world, is that there is a disconnect between who Jesus says he is and who we believe that he is. And until we fix that, we'll continue to have issues. And in this passage, Mark chapter 3, from verse 20 to 35, we see several wrong views about Jesus. And the stories about Jesus are fake, that Jesus is insane, that Jesus is evil. But also we will see Jesus himself confronting us with the truth about who he is, that he is the Son of God. And for us, the question is not what, we will believe, what will we believe, but actually what have we believed because we'll see that we've already come to a conclusion about Jesus. The problem is that the conclusion we have come to may not be what we think it is. And it's my prayer that today God will reveal to us what we truly believe about Jesus and help us to make a change. Amen. And so the title of our sermon today is, Who is this Jesus? And we're going to be looking at it under, there are four conclusions we see about that. So that'll be our four points for today. Is Jesus a legend? Or was he a legend? Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? But before we go on, I need to say something about the structure of this passage. So Mark arranges this passage in a peculiar way that he actually does a lot. But this is the first time that we are seeing it in the book of Mark. It's called an intercalation. Can we say it together? Intercalation. And if you're a geologist, already you know what that means. But for those of us that ran away from science class, <laughs> a scholar, his name is Reverend Dr. Femi Oshini, he has, he has coined a term to help us understand this structure. He calls it a risky bugger. Can, can, can I have a picture up? So the bread part, above and below, is the same story. The story of Jesus' encounter with his family, we see that in verse 20 and 21, and then verse 30 to 35, 31, 35. And then the middle part with the acara and onions and whatever is the second story, the story of Jesus' encounter with the scribes or the teachers of the law. And what the second story does, what the middle part does, just like a risky burger, is that it serves to tie together the first story. It serves to illuminate it in such a way that will not be possible if that other story was on its own. Does that make any sense? And so we'll come back to this. Just keep it in mind. We'll come back to it, but let's go to the passage. Verse 20. Then Jesus entered the house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he 
is out of his mind. And so what's happening here is that Jesus' family wants to stage an intervention. An intervention is when people who care about you basically ambush you and say, hey, we need to have an honest conversation about this aspect of your life that is destroying you, yet you are blind to. And if you have a family member that supports Arsenal, you have been considering this as well. <laughs> so that is what's happening here. Jesus' family have... <laughs> Jesus' family have heard that some funny business is going on with Jesus. We've seen them in the series in Mark chapter 1. We saw him touching lepers. In chapter 2, he was claiming to forgive sins. And in also in that same chapter 2, he was hanging around with tax collectors and sinners. And now he's also all over the place in verse 20. And he barely has time to eat. And so verse 21 says his family went to take charge of him. But it's actually a lot more serious than this. A lot, the, the, the word that is used there in, in, when it appears, appears in the Bible in other places, almost always used in a violent sense. And so, so some, vers, some versions have it as he, they went to seize him. They went to restrain him. In other words, they went to bundle Jesus and take him back home to Nazareth. Why? Verse 21 tells us that Jesus, it was their firstborn, so maybe brother Jesus. Can I call him Bruce J? Ross J has lost his mind. And is it me or is this a weird story? Jesus and meant in the same sentence. <laughs> wow. <laughs> it's somehow. But the fact that this story even appears in the Bible in the first place is one of the reasons we know that the Gospels are a reliable record. That they are not a legend because, you see, stories like this are not typically included in the official narrative of an organization or a movement. I once went for a pre-launch meeting at a, in a church plant. Don't worry, it was not City Church. It was in Port Harcourt. And while we were waiting for people to come, the pastor's wife, she was drinking water, pure water. And after drinking it, she blew the empty sachet. We're like, I, I don't, what, is, what is happening here? She tied it. We're like... You know those things that you know what, what's about to happen, but you're like, no, no, I can't believe my eyes. And then she put it on the ground. And this woman was wearing high heel. She now bust it with a high heel. Gah! The pastor was so embarrassed. We were embarrassed for the pastor. And here's what I can tell you for free. When they talk about the early days of that church, this story will never, ever come up. But what will be odd will be for if it actually did come up and someone will say, it's a fabrication. There's no motive to put something like that there. And so for us to be reading this story that Jesus' own family thought that he was insane, it means that the writers of the gospel were really, really honest about what happened. It's a pointer to the gospels being a reliable record. But some people have said, hold on, I can think of a motive. You know, it's Mark that wrote this passage. This, this is Mark's gospel. And Mark was Peter's boy. So Mark put it here because of internal politics in the church. So one of Jesus' brothers, James, goes on to become a leader in the early church. And the theory goes that Mark put it here because he had to discredit and embarrass James. That actually makes sense. To be honest, it does make sense. The problem with that is that this, is, this type of stories. This is not the only time this type of story appears in the Bible. Stories that do not make sense being in the narrative if they were a fabrication are all over the Gospels. Here's one. In Bible times, the testimony of women, and you might have heard this before, was not admissible, admissible in court. In fact, there's an interesting story, one of my favorite stories. It's called the story of Susanna. It was written a little while after Jesus' time. And in the story, okay, no, it was not, it's not one of my favorite stories. But in the story, two elders conspire to try to sleep with a woman. And when she says no, they then accuse her of committing adultery. And she's going to be stoned because, of course, nobody listens to her, even though she denies it, because the testimony of women, nobody listens to it. And the only reason why Susanna is saved is because another man 
speaks up for her. But we'll come to the Gospels, and what do we see in Luke 24? Jesus resurrects, and who does he first appear to? Women. It doesn't make sense at all. It doesn't help the cause of the church in any way. There's no way on earth things like this will be in there if they were a legend. Jesus was not a legend. The stories about him are true. And so let's go back to our passage. We then see the second conclusion we can come to about Jesus. Maybe he was not a legend. Or maybe Jesus was a lunatic. His family said that in verse 21. They went to take charge of him for they heard. He said he is out of his mind. But here's the thing. Jesus' family are not the only people to come to this conclusion. A lot of us have also come to it as well. And of course, we're not going to say it loud. But when, just like my, my elbow, if you trace, that I trace to my wrist, if we trace the way we live and our attitudes to their source, what we'll often find there is the assumption that Jesus is insane. How? Because what we often do is that we rationalize Jesus' words. We say, ah, Jesus cannot be possibly serious about this. He cannot be expecting me to actually seriously consider this. We tend to look at Jesus' words through the lens of what I call a yes, but. So, for example, we'll say, yes, Jesus said pray for your enemies. But he did not give prayer points. <laughs> so I can tell them to die by fire. He didn't give prayer points. Jesus, yes. Jesus said, no, yes, he is nice. He's not a fruit of the Spirit. But I can still date someone that is not a Christian. Yes, prayer is the key. But maybe they've changed the padlock. <laughs> and so I'm going to try every other thing first before I finally bring my problems to God. Do you see when we treat Jesus' commands as suggestions, they're implying that what Jesus says makes no sense. And what we call someone who consistently says things that do not make sense, we say that they are insane. And so like Jesus' siblings, we want to seize Jesus and take him to somewhere where he can be controlled. We want a tame Jesus, a Jesus that agrees with whatever we say, that does what we want. And guys, we cannot just say, oh no, I cannot do that. We cannot assume that we did not do this. We cannot assume that we did not take Jesus for granted. The most baffling verse in this passage for me is not verse 29, which talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. For me, it's actually verse 31. Remember, it's like, like the, the bugger, it's the same story in, at the beginning and the end. So it's a continuum of the first story. In verse 31, we see who the family of Jesus are that are coming to take him away. He says, then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to go and call him. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Jesus' mother. Mary. The same Mary that stood in the presence of the angel Gabriel. The same Mary that was pregnant as a virgin. The same Mary that is there when Jesus turns water into wine. Mary is with those that come to seize Jesus and take him away. Guys, I get them before. No be property. It doesn't matter what your experience experiences were with God. Maybe we're a fellowship leader on campus. Maybe at some point in your life you could pray for hours. The question is this, what is the state of your soul right now? And honestly, when I was preparing this passage, I was thinking I need to explain this part very well so people can, can get it. But then he hits me. He's talking to me as well. Like C.S. Lewis says, the work of submitting to Jesus must begin again every day as if nothing has been done before. Forget about what happened in the past. What's going on with you today? But as bad as this is, there's actually something worse. Let's look at verse 22, my third point. And the teachers of the law came down from who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. 
Here's what we're saying. Jesus is not a lunatic, but he's a liar. Here's the logic. He seems he's possessed by Satan, who is a liar. Then everything Jesus says is a liar. Everything Jesus says are lies as well. Jesus is a liar as well. And we need to understand something. These guys were not random people. The scribes or the teachers of the law from Jerusalem were the final authority as in the whole land of Israel as far as interpreting the scriptures were concerned. They knew the Bible like the back of their hand. Remember in Matthew chapter 2, when the wise men come to worship Jesus in the Messiah in Jerusalem, Herod is trying to find out where the Messiah will be born. And who does he consult? Verse 4, when he had called together all the people's chief priests and who? The teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judah, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. They get the answer immediately. The scribes have spent time in the scriptures. In fact, the word scribe comes from the word to copy. These guys meticulously copy the Old Testament by hand. But here's the thing. Jesus maintained that these same scriptures testified of him. You can see that in John chapter 5, verse 39. And so, you would expect that these people that were so familiar with these same scriptures would recognize him. Surely they will say at the minimum like Nicodemus did in John chapter 3, verse 2, no man can do the things that you do if God were not with him. But what did they say? They said, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is casting out demons. Here's what's scary, brothers and sisters. It is possible to be around Jesus and yet not believe in him. It is possible to think that you're on the inside with Jesus and yet be on the outside. We see in this passage the people who were, number one, genetically closest to Jesus, his family, and then theologically closest to Jesus, the scribes, teachers of the law, came to wrong conclusions about him. But here's why the scribes are different and even worse than Jesus' family. Whereas Jesus' family is outrightly dismissing his claims, maybe not even considering them, maybe for see finish, whatever reason, the scribes examine the evidence. This man is healing lepers. He is casting out demons. He is performing real, verifiable miracles. But they are not just miracles. The Bible calls them signs because they point to Jesus as being the Messiah of prophecy. Well, yet how do these guys respond even after considering the evidence? They say, even though. Even though. Rather than admit that Jesus is who he says he is, they attribute his powers to the devil. And you will think that it's only atheists that do this. But it's an issue that actually tends to affect more mature Christians as well. I may say, hold on, I know I'm not perfect. But I've never attributed Jesus' powers to the devil. And that's true. Maybe you have not done that. But when we listen to Jesus' words, acknowledge that what he says is correct, but then still conclude, even though I will go ahead and do what I want, but in a sense, doing the same thing that these guys did. And Jesus has a warning. That if you're doing this, you're playing a dangerous game. Verse 28, truly I tell you, People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. And so we come to the famous issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I think the fact, I just want to say, I think the fact that Jesus is warning them about it means that the scribes have not yet committed it, but they are on their way. Yeah? So, what the subject has actually been a real source of confusion for many people. Don't lie. Have you ever read this passage before and gone, now wow. And you want to say, this thing sounds a bit petty, but you're afraid to even think it because what if that is <laughs> blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? For some others, it's not just an academic confusion, but it's actually something deeper. 
my first introduction to this concept was as a kid. I was maybe nine or 10 years old. And there was this thing we used to do where I grew up. We called it wording. It's maybe the equivalent of what Americans will call your mama jokes. And so we say things like, see your flat head like conductor slippers. See your small teeth like Satan Kuli Kuli. <laughs> and so there was this particular one that had to do with substituting the Trinity for with Gringory, Clarus, and Mommy Water. First of all, children are foolish. That's the first thing about it. As one, pastor, one pastor said, you need to give them the five-fold ministry. But... <laughs> Well, also, if you do not recognize those names, they are comedians from a TV show from back in the day. But anyway, an adult overheard us and called us and explained to us from the Bible that by laughing and making such a stupid joke, we had committed blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to hell. Say, so you will never be forgiven. I couldn't sleep for a long while. <laughs> I'm not going to show it now. I'm not going to show how I got over it, really. But here's the thing. Even though what we're doing was probably, maybe most likely, blasphemous, simply cursing out the Holy Spirit, I don't think that's what Jesus meant by blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Here's something else he's not. It's not a scenario where people are repenting and begging and praying for forgiveness. And the Holy Spirit just goes, nope. It's all over. <laughs> don't cry. Don't beg. It's all over. <laughs> no, no, no. And just refuses to forgive them. Here's what I think I believe Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that it is possible for your heart to become so hardened that you are past conviction. Because you see, part of what the Holy Spirit does is that he's the one that brings conviction. And so if you continue to knowingly resist the Holy Spirit like the scribes were doing, you will get more and more hardened to the state where you will never repent and thus you will never be forgiven. So you see, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit isn't as much an issue of forgiveness as much as it is an issue of repentance. It is an, a conscious attitude, a conscious posture of sin that hardens people more and more as time goes by. Because you see, sin is changing us. That's the terrible thing about sin. Sin is shaping us into a certain kind of person. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole, with all your innumerable choices, all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. To be the one kind of creature is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. And he says, each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. And the Bible talks about this, this state of being hardened against God in so many passages. Here is one, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 25. It says, so he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of, his, of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. And isn't this what is happening to some of us here? You're on fire and you don't have a clue. You're on fire and you're going about your normal business. A few weeks ago, Tommy showed us how sin is like leprosy. And so we continue to do the thing that is destroying us because we have lost sensitivity. Guys, sin is changing us. Like one of my favorite authors says, you can get away with your sin, but you can never get away with getting away with your sin. Nobody may know what you're up to. You may be in good standing in church. We all look up to you here. But your sin is doing something to you. You may get away with it. You may never be caught. But you cannot get away with getting away with your sin. 
And this is why the Bible begs us. The Bible pleads in both Psalm 95 and in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 15. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because the time is coming when your heart will be so hardened that you stop hearing his voice. And in that time, at that point, the only place left for you is hell. Because you'll become the sort of person that will not even be able to enjoy heaven, even if God were to take you there. I know I'm talking to somebody here today. Do not harden your heart. Get help. Speak to a leader. Hear God's word to you. He that covers his sin will not prosper. But he that confesses them and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We've seen three possible conclusions as to who Jesus is. Which established that the, we've established that the gospel accounts are true, so they're not a legend. We've seen Jesus' family thinking that he was a lunatic. We've seen the scribes thinking that he was a liar. But there's one last conclusion. That last one, which we'll see in the rest of the passage, is Jesus' own testimony about himself. Jesus, in this passage, introduces himself to us as the Son of God, as Lord and God. And we need to keep this in mind. Because if we move to the conclusion of Jesus' encounter with his family, Jesus goes on to say some radical stuff, some hardcore stuff that do not make any sense, except he was actually God. And I have to quote C.S. Lewis here because he formulated it best. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said will either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or, <laughs> or else he will be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something else. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And so let's look at what Jesus says that is so controversial. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother ah, and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those sitting in a circle around him and said, Hear my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother and sisters, and sister and mother. Hmm. Our problem with this passage, and we do have problems with it, our problem with this passage is not a problem of understanding. It's very straightforward. There is no alternate meaning in Greek or Aramaic. It's very straightforward. Our problem with this passage is with what we believe about Jesus. Here's one way we respond to this passage. We rationalize it. We bring up our yes, but. Yes, it's important to love fellow Christians, but Jesus cannot possibly be saying that this relationship is as strong as as strong as, or even stronger than our family ties. My brother, there was no water in Jesus' mouth when he was talking. That's exactly what he means. But it's not just in this passage that we see this. It's actually all over the New Testament. Even when it's not explicit, it's an assumption that is taken for granted. Here's an example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 14. He says, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. The Bible is assuming, can you see, that the Thessalonian Christians are so knitted together that shunning can be a means for the Holy Spirit to convict someone living in sin. And we see immediately that we, by we I mean Christians in Lagos in 2023, we cannot relate to this. See how absurd it sounds in your ears even. We are already by default so far apart that disfellowshipping is no longer practical. How do you disfellowship someone that you are not even in fellowship with in the first place? 
a while back. A woman, her name is Rosara Butterfield, she wrote a book based on Jesus' words about our relationship with others. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And what happened was there are many people still giving exceptions. Yes, but. Yes, what she's saying is correct. But I'm an introvert. Yes, what she's saying is correct. But she has a gift of hostility. But this, but that, the issue is this. What did Jesus actually say? For me personally, when I read that book, I was very convicted and challenged. I thought, this is someone that takes Jesus' word seriously. And if you take Jesus' word seriously, you at least try to obey this passage as well. Remember what Pastor Femi told us a while back? If you cannot be like Michael Jordan, at least be like Kobe. Pictures. <laughs> Boy, if you can, I'm going to add, if you cannot be like Kobe, at least be like Pastor Francis. He actually, he actually does play basketball. <laughs> well, here's my point. What? Here's my point. What we cannot do is to not play the game at all. Oh, but how many places will I share myself into? Look at verse 32. A crowd is, was sitting around Jesus. Jesus calls as many people as are willing to obey him. His family. And many times I think that we use the word community to soften the blow of Jesus' statement. And so for many of us, not all of us, but for many of us, the word community has, been, has become the way that me and people I grew, around with, grew up around, people that I grew up with, use the word dad. We call each other dad. Older, younger, everybody's dad. Male, female. Everybody's dad. You tell my sister, oh, you're the best dad in the world. You're a super dad. For us, it's a word that has lost its weight. And looking from the outside, you see, oh, these people respect each other. No. And I think that's what we are doing to the word community. Don't get me wrong. I think it's actually a very helpful term. But I think it's especially helpful as a pointer to the size of the Christian family. He's saying that your family is huge. We need to stop using it as a means to put emotional distance between each other. Because you see, brothers and sisters, the church of Jesus is not a club. It's not a company. It's a family. And this is why it's especially terrible when Christians engage in tribalism and use ethnic laws like we saw in the last election. And yes, we can, we can blame politicians for stoking ethnic fires, but let us be honest. You cannot stoke a fire that was not already burning in the first place. God's church is not a club or a company. It's a family. So what can we do? Where do we go from here? Someone may be saying, I, I'm ready to obey Jesus. I'm, not, I'm just not sure how to go about it. How, what, what can I do? And honestly, I actually thought about giving ideas. But then it hits me. You have a brother. You have a sister. Even if the relationship is not great, or maybe you don't have any siblings, you know how you'd have liked that relationship to be. The issue is not ignorance. Here's what I think. Here's my theory. Is it possible? Could it be at the root, that at the root of our helplessness about how to do community well is that we are unwilling to consider other Christians as our actual brothers and sisters? And so we weaponize incompetence because we want to rationalize Jesus' words. But the second response to Jesus is even worse is to say, yes, I see this in the Bible. But even though. Let's be practical, I beg. This is Lagos in 2023. 
Yes, Jesus said this, but it is more important for me to protect my safe space. Even though, you see what we are doing? At the root of our excuses, we are either saying like Jesus' earthly family that Jesus is a lunatic. He cannot possibly mean what he says. Or like the scribes, we are setting ourselves against God's revealed truth in scripture, thereby calling Jesus a liar. Who are my mother and my brothers? Can you look at the person next to you? According to Jesus, that's your brother. My people are. That's your sister. That's your mother. The prophet Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18, prophet Elijah, in 1 Kings chapter 18, just before he calls down fire from heaven, tells the Israelites, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, and serve him. I tell us how long will we waver on who Jesus is. If Jesus is the son of God, let us believe him. And someone in the first century that was reading it, or if someone from there was listening to the same one, that person had said, exactly! Who is this Jesus to think he can redefine societal structures at such a deep level? By what authority does he say these things? I need to see some credentials. And I think that's why Mark arranged this passage like a bugger. He uses Jesus' encounter with the scribes to show us why Jesus is the Son of God first. Before he talks about how Jesus redefined the family, Mark's point is this. It is precisely because Jesus is the Son of God, because he is God, that he says the things that he does. And so let's go back to the risky part of this bugger and look at Mark's proof. Mark shows us that Jesus proves his divinity by demonstrating his power over the devil. My final point. Verse 23. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. And he says, in fact, no man can enter into a strong man's house without first tying him up. Without first binding the strong man. Then, and only then, can he plunder the strong man's house. Here's what Jesus is saying. The world is, the world is Satan's house. Satan is not powerless. In fact, he is a strong man. What in Portacot will call a senior man. But guess what? Power pass power. Jesus was saying, the reason I can cast out demons is because I am stronger than Satan. Did you get it? Jesus was implying that if I, a human being, I'm saying I'm stronger than Satan himself, then I'm not just a man. I am God. And over the next three years, Jesus proceeds to show the devil Shege. It's almost as if he appeared on the scene like the meme and said, hey, look at me. Look at me. <laughs> I'm the captain now. Mark 3, verse 11, he's casting out demons left, right, and center. They want to talk. He charged them strictly. Shut up. Well, he does not stop there. In Mark chapter 6, he sends out his 12 disciples and gives them power over the devil and his minions. And they go out and things actually happen. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. But just in case you thought that one was a fluke, Jesus says, ah, no one. He calls the B team. 72 people. Luke chapter 10. We don't even know their names. So a lot of you line up. He gives them power over the devil as well. And they, the Bible says, 17, 7 verse 17, they returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. How does Jesus respond? In essence, he says, soft work. It's so casual how he says in verse 20, rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you. When I say that Jesus showed the devil Shege, I mean that the devil collected Woto Woto. 
At the point, the devil is so frustrated, he tries to go physical. Luke chapter 4, they tried to kill Jesus. But verse 30 says that Jesus, he walked right through their midst and went on his way. This guy was literally untouchable. And then all of a sudden, it ends. A man that was larger than life was caught to sight. Jesus, the one that does the binding, is bound and restrained on a cross. The disciples cannot believe it. This man had power over storms for goodness sake. He walked on water, but actor not supposed to die for him. Even Judas, who betrayed him, is God smart. He's like, oh my goodness, what have I done? In Matthew 27. It must have been a terrible time for the disciples. The Bible even tells us the story of two of them. In Luke 24, they were walking on the road to a mouse. And they met a stranger. And he began to talk and he, he asked him what's been going on. He asked him what's been going on. And he said, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. They replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and in deed before all God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, this is the third day since all this took place. See what they had said? We had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. Some versions read it as we had hoped that he was the one that was going to deliver Israel. The one that was going to set Israel free. And the stranger, who, spoiler alert, was Jesus began to explain to them all that was said about him in the scriptures. He said, Luke chapter 24, verse 26, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? The ESV says, was it not necessary that the son for the Messiah to suffer all these things and then enter into his glory? Why? Why? Why was it necessary? <laughs> because, and listen, to plunder the strong man, you must first bind the strong man. But in order to bind the strong man, you have to go to the strong man's house. Someone you don't understand is to plunder the strong man. This is why Jesus died. To plunder the strong man, you must bind the strong man. But in order to bind the strong man, you must go to the strong man's house. Oh, when Jesus died, everybody thought it was all over. Darkness rejoiced as though hell has lost. Ah. Oh, Jesus. But it was part of Jesus' plan all along. See how the Bible puts it. In as much as the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. In other words, when Jesus died, he went and told death, hell, and the grave, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'm the captain now. And I hear the devil protesting, hold on, hold on. These guys are no victims. You cannot take my, my, my captives away. They hate each other. They are accomplices. They take advantage of each other. They oppress each other. You cannot take them away. And Jesus would have turned and replied to him. Even though. Yes, they are sinners. But even though. Yes, they deserve death. But even though. Shall the prey be taken from the mighty. Or the lawful captive delivered. But thus says the Lord. Even the captives of the mighty shall be taken away. And the prey of the terrible shall be delivered. For I will contend with him. That contends with thee. And I will save thy children. And all flesh shall know. That I the Lord am thy savior. And thy redeemer. The mighty one of Jacob. And so the Bible says in Acts. Chapter 2, verse 24, that God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible. It was impossible. It was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. Death could not hold the great Can we rise to our feet? For the time, 
is our response to this. Our response is to fall at his feet and worship him that was dead and is now alive, that now has the keys of death and the grave, that is far above all principalities and powers, that made an open show of the devil, triumphing them over them on his cross. Our response is to live our lives in service to him. It doesn't matter what has been going on with you. Maybe you have been ignoring Jesus for quite a while. Even though. Maybe you have been resisting him. Or even though. Today can mark a new chapter. In your life. In fact I have good news for you. The story of Jesus brothers does not end in Mark chapter 3. We are told at least two of them came to faith in Christ. And became leaders in the church. They even write books of the Bible. And whereas in this passage, they stand outside and send someone in to call Jesus so that they can seize him. Both of them start their books in almost exactly the same way. I, James, James 1 verse 1, a born servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude, a born servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Do you see? They have moved from questioning Jesus' sanity to submitting to his lordship. They have moved from wanting to bind Jesus to becoming born servants of Jesus. The question is, will you do the same today? Let us pray. Thanks for listening. If you found this sermon helpful, we hope you join us in the mission of renewing Lagos with the gospel by sharing it, rating this podcast and following us. These actions help us reach more people with the gospel. You can also connect with us on various social media platforms via the handle at City Church Lagos. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.